wheat volatility is riding high. And the cattle price won't slide. We wonder what's going to happen next. Smart money's buying sheep. Your advice comes pretty cheap. Why don't you ask what we can do? Just the two of us. Making podcasts on the fly. Just, Just the, the two, two of us. us. Just, Just the two of us. Of us. You and I. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Gabriel Chan. I am Rural and Regional Editor of Guardian Australia, coming to you from Wiradjuri country in the southwest slopes of New South Wales. This is an anarchic socialist takeover (laughs) of the Ag Watchers podcast. Uh, I have thrown the two regular gents off the microphone and I am taking over this podcast. Hopefully, It'll continue. Uh, now, I am the installed leader of the outfit fit for the next hour or so, so I'm going to ask them all the questions I've always wanted to ask. So my guests here are Andrew Whitelaw and Matt Dalgleish. Uh, I think you probably know them. Along the way, we're going to slay some sacred cows, so probably get ourselves in trouble. And then hopefully none of you will get to the complaint box before Christmas and you'll be so chilled by the end of January, we won't need to worry about it. So good morning, everyone. Thanks good morning, for, uh, Mrs. Thanks. Chan. <laughs> I'm a bit nervous, actually. She's, um, we, we got this idea, Gabby, when, um, when you came on the podcast last time and off, off air you said you, you were resisting the urge to ask us questions all the way through the podcast and we thought that would be a good idea. So for our 150th episode, which is this one, we thought we'd turn the tables on ourselves. So we've got no idea what you've got planned for us. Perfect. <laughs> they they actually don't, listeners. I can tell you they have no idea. Um, and that's good because I want to ask first up. So agriculture is this kind of weird industry, right, where in a sense the three of us are looking in from the outside. Um, I've always wondered whether Australian ag generally has some form of Stockholm syndrome, you know, where you fall in love with your captors. Um, there's a kind of reticence to speak out. Do you do you guys find that um, in talking about the things you talk about? Because well, you we, do we, press we, some buttons. We never speak out. We we never we always want to make sure that we are following the line straight and narrow we want to follow what the rest of the industry is doing you know we we believe that it's fit in and and just do our thing for the industry you know this is a fantastic industry blah 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 and uh, we're here to support it on ag day every single year okay Matt. <laughs> yeah so that was a good answer andrew um that's absolute rubbish um i i guess yeah, I don't know if I'd describe it as Stockholm syndrome, but it, but it, there, I, I get what you're saying that there's that, there's that feeling that like you, you know, you, you're part of a big kind of important industry or, or group in terms of what we do, and so yeah, but that's bullshit as well. What? Yeah, it, sorry, it is. I, it I, is I forgot. Pretty, I can't remember if we're allowed to swear in this one. I'm not asked the boss. <laughs> yeah, it I'm is. The boss. It, I'm a, it is. I'm a swearer. But it is, but, it is, but, but it if isn't, you, if, right? If you like, worked in a building trade, that's equally as important. If you worked in iron ore, that's equally important. Everything's important. Digging ditches is important. 
Anyway. I'm just saying. I'm just saying though that you know that being part of the, you know, part yeah, of the. Important. Yeah, but then, but isn't that then true then of any industry that if you're if you're kind of 100%. part of the industry, you don't, you know, it is difficult to to um, point out difficulties or, or yeah, no, no to, to, I'm just thinking of phrasing <laughs> it, pointing out difficulties or or saying things controversial to a degree. Um, you know, it's it's not a common thing, is it? It's, I don't know. So enough. Is that what you were getting at, Gabby? I can't, I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a re- reticence to speak out. I guess. I mean, let's let's use a concrete example, right? So you guys have um, thrown a small hand grenade into uh, the fertilizer industry, for example. So you're doing you you're trying to get some transparency in the fertilizer lizer industry uh, via a survey that you're doing through your website. Now, there seemed to me um, after the stories, uh, you did a story for us, but obviously you, you've done your own analysis uh, well before that, um, that uh, people were a little bit sort of surprised that you thought that that was an issue that you couldn't see those prices and how they land here. I guess, I guess, when it comes down, to, I don't consider us to be troublemakers, despite everyone thinking we are. Well, do uh, they think you are? Do do you, do think, you get that I think, sense? I think some people. I'm pretty do. sure they use the word "see." Um, <laughs> see you next Tuesday. Um, uh, and uh, troublemakers would be a probably a polite way of them saying it. Uh, but to us, it's just, I don't know, I, I was speaking for myself here, but mm. it's about just the truth. And markets are just puzzles. We we love markets. And so we talk about them. And I guess I don't like it when people have, you know, the, the wool pulled over their eyes, so to speak. And it's just, it's not troublemaking, it's just highlighting things. No, no it's trouble. It's, no, it's, it's not different tr- to what you do at the Guardians or any it, other newspapers highlighting things. It's troublemaking, though, if we're saying <laughs> things that people don't want us to say, but then equally, like, like there would be some that would see us that way depending upon the topic, but then there's others that say, oh, when we, when we do come out with something that's controversial, they say, oh, I'm glad someone I, said this. I don't, I don't think you anything know? we've said has been ever controversial. There's been points where people have not liked the opinion, but that doesn't mean it's controversial. Mm. And I think we've had people who have said, oh, you're a prick for saying that. And then the next week we say something else, which on a different topic, say, oh, thanks very much for saying that. No one else is saying that or whatever. So it's like being a journalist. Yeah, well. One, one week a, a, you're a, a genius a, and the next week you're an idiot. <laughs> a journalist, so, journalist, so who, journalist who can't write properly. That's the difference. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what... That's what you do, and you can't. When your English is poor, you don't become a journalist; you become an analyst. <laughs> well, I think you're right, pretty clearly, both uh, of you. Being an analyst, um, is, being an analyst is really easy, by the way, as well. I've worked it out. How, how's that? All you got to do is get a thesaurus opened, right? Yeah. And all the synonyms for up, and all the synonyms for down, and that's it. That's all you got to do. As long as you know Perfect. all the words for markets going up and markets going down. And a couple of words for the market being flat. That's it. Perfect. So did you get any pushback from the fertilizer industry after that uh, piece? Mm, I did hear something, actually. I did hear that somebody in the fertilizer industry mentioned it at a presentation in Perth 
seeing a couple of two-bit analysts writing in the Guardian <laughs> about organic fertilizer or something. Um, no, it, one of the funniest things that I've always found funny, but like specifically that fertilizer piece, and like Matt and I have been together as a couple for <laughs> seven years, according to LinkedIn, and analyzing markets, analyzing. I suppose we don't really just analyze markets, we analyze agriculture in general now. So it's a bit broader. Um, we've covered live export of sheep, cattle. Yeah. We've covered the guinea pig trade in Peru. <laughs> uh, we've covered sheep sharing wages. We've covered GM crops, chemicals, diesel, fertilizer. Beyond meat. Beyond meat, all that kind of stuff, yeah. Um. But when you look at the like the fertilizer one, the fertilizer ones is interesting because uh, as soon as we write an article on fertilizer, every almost every time, I'll look at my LinkedIn profile and you can look at the people who viewed your profile, <laughs> and it's like da 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 da, ex fertilizer company, da 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 da, fertilizer company, da 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 da, major fertilizer importer, and then you quite often will get a phone call from X person explaining what was the words, Matt? Explaining how, how, explaining how commodity markets work. <laughs> yeah, or why um you know Not that why, you guys would why know. they yeah. why they can't provide transparency, which yeah, which a lot of the arguments that they put forward for those are not really Well funnily, about... funnily, funnily enough, we did say, Well, is there any chance you can repeat this on the podcast for us for the rest of the listeners? And that, <laughs> that invitation wasn't 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 uh, taken up. Uh probably because it was bullshit as well. Um, what was the question again? Well, have you had pushback? Oh, and so the answer is yes. The oh, answer like, is yes. I think what not funnily enough, I think we didn't get much feedback from the Guardian article that Matt did last month, or not much. We did get feedback in initial stages when we started. When we first started TM, we started doing fertilizer and pushed it further. And we did get sort of um, what was the words used, Matt? We can't tell you not to write about this. But we prefer if you didn't. Prefer if you didn't. <laughs> and I think yeah. what, and we got those phone calls quite often, uh, probably from the similar sort of people. Mm. And I think they realized after a time that it was sort of, what's the value in us not writing about it? And probably, probably, I, by, the, probably by the time the fertilizer article was published on The Guardian, Gabby, all of those that would have, kind of had something to say to us had already tried to had tried to say things so they probably just you know threw their hands in the air and said these guys are incorrigible or something yeah they can't be they can't be swayed well that might be a nice word for it yeah we're we're independent yes the difference and we've we've got no axe to grind in fertilizer we don't we don't trade fertilizer we don't work for anyone that does trade fertilizer it goes back to just liking markets though we like markets and we like to see when markets are working right and functioning properly and and we perceive the fertilizer market doesn't function properly because there's a asymmetry of information there yeah an unequal balance between the users of fertilizer and the people that bring it in to the country the other thing about markets uh, and fertilizer and and other aspects of ag industry is, I guess, competition. And I know both of you have done uh, analysis around, you know, some of the bigger 
players in the market. I think there was a, uh, was it the Ag Equities piece? Uh, we looked at market capitalization of some of the big companies. And I think that's a oh, feature yeah. Yeah. of ag generally that um, competition policy that started in the 90s, uh, and I've written about this too, you know, has led to the concentration of markets uh, in in quite a small market of Australia. Um do you reckon it works? Do you reckon competition policy is working? Just looking at the way, at what you find with your analysis. If, if if you look at grains, grains is a good example, yeah. Because uh, we've seen this evolution over the years. <clears throat> you had one AWB, effectively, a few other domestic players, but large AWB, two thousand eight deregulation. Then you had a huge number of uh, traders come in. And they've slowly sort of left the market. So it's back to sort of probably eight major players, which is basically the bulk handlers. But, you know, whether competition works, I think it's an easy access to, easy market to access. Like there's not a huge barrier to entry for, for anyone entering the market. Like retail, you know, you've got, you know, a couple of big players, but then you've got a lot of smaller players as well. Like if you look at retail, you've got obviously elders, you've got uh, Nutrien, and then, but then you've got a whole bunch of little smaller ones like Air, uh, Delta, AWM, and they're all growing as well. And if you look at AW, AWM is probably the best example. It was the Wool Network, Australian Wool Network. Mm. It was AWM because they were a beneficiary of Nutrien taking over Ruralco because so many staff were disgruntled that they left and AWM ended up setting up their own livestock divisions, which they, hitherto they hadn't been doing. So I don't know. I think there's plenty of competition. What about you, Matt? Like CBH just made a profit of uh, half a billion, I think, um, recently. That's the uh, wheat handler uh, and cooperative. The co-op, that's, yep. that's, that's a different model. Um, and as much as, well, the last government, you know, Barnaby Joyce got a bit excited about co-ops, but they've never sort of come back. But that's obviously a successful kind of co-op model that will pay rebates to growers uh, out of profits. Um, wh- what do you think about that whole area? Uh, in terms of the competition or the co-op yeah, space? Yeah, yeah, competition and, and CBH, uh, you know, is it, we're not going to see a comeback of co-ops or anything like that, like that horse has bolted, right? Sure. Uh, I don't know. I, I think there's there are there can be some benefits in that co-op model. Um, I don't think I, I, I don't think a signal that there's strong profits being made in a market means there's a lack of competition, though. Um, you know, I think that's probably more a nature of the you know the, the current environment in terms of supply and demand it means that you know and and the season, I guess, as well that's been quite favourable, right, for the producer and, and anyone involved in ag. And I, I think that's a, a, a different dynamic. So, so for me, looking and seeing big profits being made doesn't always mean that there's some kind of imbalance of market power or lack of competition. Um, you know, uh, yeah. But 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 the co-op the co-op aspect, I, I'm not I'm not convinced that 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 that's the end of you know, or, the, or that that's an old-fashioned kind of model. I think there are some areas where co-ops could be quite useful still. Like where? Um, well, in terms of um, 
you know, farmer buyer groups and stuff. If you're looking, like, particularly in an environment now where you've got, you know, um, inflationary situations and cost pressures and cost squeezes, um, co-ops around, you know, the, the kind of um, rebalancing out of that power that power dynamic. So, so again, going back to something like a fertilizer. Uh, scenario with with the cost pressures that we see globally around energy or around you know fertilizer or other inputs fuels labor stuff you know co-ops can sometimes be quite effective in that space where you know they can help to provide a bit more um, balance to a market that's got uneven power structure i reckon i reckon for once you're right matt (laughs) Uh, but as a scotsman many people don't realize i'm scottish with my Aussie accent. I think your Irish accent. My Aussie accent. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. uh, Scotland's full of co-ops in agriculture. Absolutely chomping full of uh, co-ops. And they've got co-ops for potato boxes. So 10 potato farmers get together and they go and buy the boxes for potatoes. And they get a, 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 you know, a saving, a cost saving. And that's the whole thing about co-ops. Is, it's a socialist movement anyway. That's why they're popular in Scotland, because it's a socialist country. Um, and the reality is, if you can get a cost saving by working together, but that's the main problem, is getting people to work together to actually have a cost saving. But there is, there's money out there. There's funding, I'm pretty sure. Like Barnaby had some funding, but there's still funding yeah, out there for setting up co-ops. Mm-hmm. There's the BCCM, which is a business co-op something, something. Um, they provide free advice and set up co-ops. And it's not hard. Like, especially for farmers, but it's not even co-ops either. Uh, farmers have a dispensation from the ACCC for group procurement. Really? I did not know that. So if you're a small business, uh, you can group with a bunch of other farmers and you can say, right, Jimmy, Angus, uh, let's go and buy some fencing supplies. And we'll, we'll instead of buying five kilometers of fence and supplies will buy 20 kilometers of fence and supplies. Let's go to X, Y, and Z and tender it out. And boom. It's not more, seen, it's not seen as anti-competitive. It's not yeah. anti-competitive because it's small business yeah. or agriculture. So that's, I don't know if that's relatively new or not, but it was an unknown sort of thing. Yeah. I've never heard of it. So, so farmers don't actually need a co-op and all the structure around a co-op. They could do it as a one-off thing. I know how much paperwork it requires to set up a, Group procurement? No. One A4 sheet. Oh, oh my That's God. It. I'm, I'm going to go and set up one for the, everyone on the road. <laughs> and and you can you can then tender. And, and it's about getting buying power together. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. What's that song? That's really interesting. What's that song, Matt? Together We Stand United We Fall. Yep. <laughs> That's a good Guardian one. Huh? You know, you know, picture of Che Guevara oh. on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Where is your picture of Che Guevara? It's a, oh, he's, he's it's, it's, it's didn't your, didn't your nephew send it? It's, it's, a, it's in my bedroom. Is that where you, is that where your beard style is coming from? You just need the hat and the distant look into yeah, you know. yeah, red star. Um, okay, Andrew, you did a piece for us, I think, in the last year on FMD, and really that was, kind of that was a very emotive right. piece raised the alarm, if you like, one of the, I think it might have been the earliest piece, but um, certainly one of. Uh, what are the tips for ag in 2023? Like what are the big things that big you... Big things to look out for. 
Well, the first tip for agriculture is all these agricultural companies should go out and hire really good analysts. <laughs> that would be that would be first and foremost. Cheap analysts <clears throat> with, with experience across markets. Sometimes independent ones. Independent, independent ones. And, yeah. and when, if, we say, when we say when we say troublemaker, it's not a troublemaker. It's fact finders. <laughs> you know, truth seekers. And, come on, come on! Over right, the ad right, break. Um, <laughs> this this podcast was brought to you by. Uh, what we're we talking about again? Twenty twenty three. Big tips. Big tips. Yeah. Big tips for twenty twenty three. I think it's going to be difficult. Twenty twenty three. Uh, what less difficult than 2022 oh more difficult yeah uh, i think we, we're probably coming into a bit of change in terms of like the wider macro environment so we're, we're seeing um at the moment things have been good we've had good prices for a lot of commodities uh livestock etc has been pretty good uh, but i think we've got that risk of global recession still in the background and as much as people always say, you know, the price of meat will never come down. This is a new, new, blah, 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 blah. I think there's still a potential there for, you know, demand destruction as people eat less meat. And that could have a flow-on effect to grains. So I still think there's that risk there. I still think the Russian war will continue uh, to, to bubble away, which will probably keep input prices high. Uh, although we won't know, I guess, if input prices are high in Australia for fertilizer relative to the rest of the world because we don't see the pricing. There you go. There's another throwaway line in there. Yep. Um, yeah, I think there'll be a lot more uh, surprises next year. Matt, is, it, is, is Andrew wrong on that? I, I remember talking to you distinctly about um, meat prices and even though isn't isn't it the fact that even though meat prices are coming down in in uh, Western country or meat consumption is coming down in Western countries, it's going up uh, across the world. Is that have yeah, I got I think, that wrong? No, but I think the longer term dynamic is probably beyond next year in terms of the, the the good prospects, you know, down the track for something like meat as a protein. I think the yeah, you've probably got to go out five years, 10 years to see that there's still continued growth in developed areas and not enough supply. Whereas next year, I think Andrew's probably focusing maybe just on next year, which certainly there are some um, dark clouds, you know, in the, in the shape of recession, uh, particularly for say something like sheep meat um, can be. So, so, so just to break it down really simply, you're saying that people will have less money, therefore they will be spending less on meat is that is that as simple as it gets uh yeah is and, that why and, consumption well, would go down yeah yeah so those or some of those and those discretionary spends as well on items say like wool as another commodity that's impacted by um recessionary type you know um pressures um i, I think the other the other thing though that you touched on at the outset um gabby regarding fmd was i think the article you referenced first off I think I think there's still that spectre of disease. It's a that's we we aren't out, it might not be FMD that we're out of the woods on, but I think things like lumpy skin, um, it continues to spread in Indonesia and gets closer and closer. So that one, 
as a disease outbreak in Australia, I think it's uh, one we've got to keep a real close eye on, and that's probably a higher probability, well, it is a higher probability than getting FMD. And then even things like ASF haven't gone away. You know, there's Philippines Jap- are still grappling Jap- with that. Japanese encephalitis. Japanese encephalitis, yep, another one. So there's a whole range of different areas there that I think uh, could pose us some problems. And I think that's um, that, that FMD thing is is dissipated to an extent. And it was it was a bit crazy, that media sort of thing. And, and we were one of the first ones to talk about it. Um, I thought so. For for anyone else, um, funnily enough, here here's a fact for you that I found out this morning, Gabby. A friend of mine sent me a message to say, "Did you know that you're listed as an official resource on FMD <laughs> on really? the, on the uh, agriculture Department of Agriculture website? It's uh, you can listen to the Ag Watchers podcasts." Uh, to get the facts on FMD from the chief vet. Imagine oh, us. Well, being, I think, being a, being oh, hang on. I think us, that's us. about the chief vet. Yeah, 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 that's what, that's I don't know. I, guess, I, think I it's don't more know about, about the chief vet than us. Yeah. Uh, so you can you can watch this boring short video developed by New Zealand's Ministry of Prime Industries, or you can listen to the Ag Watchers podcast. No, I'm just I'm just I'm just saying we are a a source of facts now. Right. Yes. So we're not well. just a bunch of Yahoo's analysts. Mm. Yeah, so I think I think just I was getting back to so disease is one aspect that I think whether and whether it's next year that's the year where we get you know something serious um, impacting upon us like lumpy skin or whether it's twenty twenty four or twenty twenty five I think I think there's a real risk that that could be something we're facing in the near term next few years. But, but going Mate, back to FMD though, that was probably a good thing because it's a, a sort of kick up for people to actually realise that biosecurity is a thing. Because mm. it's been ignored for so long, and, and there's been some benefits of it. As much as some people might complain, but the fact is that that national EID rollout for 2025 mm. is going to go ahead. That's too late. 2025. It, it's it may time. it may be, but it's it, it's not much. You know, it should have been something that was done much much earlier. But well, sh- like it should have, they should really have been looking at it five years ago. That's mm. all the recommendations. But it is what it is. It takes time. Mm. And, and and it's not really that far away. We're twenty twenty three just now, practically. I guess, yeah. So, the the um, other thing, the other thing would be just the, the the transition. I think that we're going to see next year in terms of away from um, this wetter La Nina. I think the chances of us having a another good season is pretty slim. So you know, I don't think we're going to go straight into a drought, but I think we're we're, we're kind of o- we're, we're over enough, the hill we're in enough terms moisture of moisture in the soil anyway. Yeah, for this year, next year, but then looking towards 2024, 2025, middle of the decade, um, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're heading towards the, the next man. drought. You've told us there's, <laughs> going to be a, there's going to be a recession, there's going to be a drought, there's going to be disease. Matt, that's not, that's not the line. Yeah, but once we get past to say that, that we're going to be 100 billion by 2030. Yeah, we'll, we'll, so, get, so there. we'll get there mostly on inflation. Yeah, well, that's isn't that the whole point of that target? You're not, you're not like, it's to... just inflation. Uh, but Matt, you're not you're supposed to toe the line. I was trying to, at the start of this podcast trying to say that we tore the line. We're not troublemakers and we're not doomsayers. I think we were looking at the numbers when when that first came out, the hundred billion. Not, I think it's a, it's a, it's an admirable um, target, right? Is it? But well, you know, it's at least you got to put you got to start a target somewhere, and the hundred billion's got a nice round number to it, yeah. Um, but when you look, I think it was we were sitting at sixty-six billion at the time, and if you did, if you if you took if you, about if you two, the last ten years, two, two to three percent inflation, and then projected it forwards, I think you got to, to 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80
It wasn't yeah, so you got you got pretty close to 100 just on inflation, and and that's not accounting for say five percent inflation that we're seeing now. So, um, yeah, we'll just you know, see how we go. You got you got to have a target. You've got a goal. What what is the the, the wanky term? It's got to be smart goals, mm-hmm. specific, measurable, achievable, achievable realistic, realistic, and targeted, yeah. or timely. I can't remember. Well, yeah, timely, I think. Sounds like a whiteboard to me. Yeah, so, um, carbon markets. Oh, here we go. This one. Yeah. Carbon markets. Everyone is talking about carbon markets, whether or not they should be selling their carbon. Uh, It's a very controversial issue. Obviously, there's, um, you know, the government's trying to kind of get uh, some of the systems, uh, I, I guess, inject a bit more rigor into some of the systems. What do you guys think of carbon markets? Do you think agriculture will be making a mozza out of selling their carbon or do you think uh it's a bit of a um it's a bit of a shimmerer in terms of or a fantasy in terms of how much you're going to make um everyone i've spoken to uh seems to be saying well you know you want to increase your carbon for your productivity in ag uh but selling it you know, is not really is still st- there's still too many hairs on on the carbon contracts at this stage. What do you guys think? Yes, I'm just trying to think of because my auntie Julie listens to this podcast, mm-hmm. and so I've actually I've, I should not swear. Uh, so I'm trying to think of a way of saying it without swearing. Um. It's got well. The current kind of structure's got flies on it. I guess I was going to say like <laughs> a stray dog. Yeah, with hairs. Um, look, I think we've done a little bit of work on on carbon markets, um, and we we've spent a lot of time at presentations with different uh, people talking about carbon markets, and there's definitely two trains of thoughts. Uh, one of them is that. Uh, this is going to save the world and we are going to make an absolute killing it. We're going to kill the pig with carbon markets. Uh, it's a very rose-tinted view of it. And then there's the other view, which is probably the real view and uh, an honest view of it. Um, carbon markets are a contract for a carbon at the moment is so long-winded. You sell grain, yeah? Yep. You sell grain for next November. Okay, I've got 12 months of risk. You sell carbon, <laughs> you've probably got a minimum 25 years of risk. And you've also got a market which changes in price like any other. <laughs> so when do you sell? Somebody who's like, I remember seeing people who had sold carbon and it was a big, amazing thing. About two or three years ago, they sold carbon at $20 a ton or whatever. It's now $120 a ton or whatever it may be. Um, but the one thing to think about is who's involved in that carbon market. Um, you've got, you know, an accumulator, which is basically a broker who will take about 40% of that anyway, uh, for all their hard work. Uh, so I think you're sort of pulling away these sort of, as you started to look at these carbon markets and we looked at them in quite a lot of detail, but from not a point of view of somebody who wants to make money from carbon markets, but somebody who says, how could I screw somebody over by being in the carbon markets? And there was just so many opportunities where there just wasn't enough 
maturity in the marketplace. And I think we're actually starting to see this now. There's like an investigation into carbon markets at the moment because a professor from ANU who was yes. the chair of the carbon markets initial sort of... Andrew McIntosh. That's the one, yeah. Mm. And um, he basically said most of the carbon projects are fraudulent. Mm. And uh, I think it's a, it's in a broad sense. What you've said, Andrew, is not incorrect anyway. I agree with all you said, but I do still want to... I want to add that I think it's a good thing that they that you know that we're going down this pathway and it's being you know included and it's being looked at but I think from a producer perspective anything short of getting maybe your baseline set up and starting to consider how you're going to deal with it like you got to start getting prepared but I, I wouldn't go down the pathway of entering into any contracts I, just I, yet I would not sell it yeah. I would not sell it a ton of carbon at the moment, especially whilst it's currently all up in areas of investigation. The other thing to think about is what's happened in New Zealand. So we, we spoke to Ben Galloway a few weeks ago, and they're looking at the the change to having to farmers having to account for their carbon, which in Australia you don't have to. And people say, oh, but we don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about it. If yeah, you but you will for, have to into your markets. But if you sign up for a 25-year contract, which is how many, how many uh, governments is that? Eight governments? Yeah, three-year, two-and-a-half, three-year term. A couple of terms. Mm. It could be any government between now and 2050 who could change the rules and say farming has to account. But if you've sold all your carbon, you're no longer carbon neutral, so you've got to find carbon from somewhere else. And that's yeah. where I think you've got to either bank it, you've got to think there's, there's sovereign risk in carbon markets way higher than any other market that we enter because the government can flick a finger and increase or decrease the demand for carbon. Um, and I think that's that's the major risk in it is, is you don't know what's going to happen with it. Grain, you know you're always going to be able to sell grain. And and I think there's, I disagree with you, Matt. What's that? That you said it was a good thing that we're going down this path. Yeah, I do think it is good. It's something we can't just stick our head in the sand and ignore it, right? Yeah, I agree. But that we need to do something for, for climate change and whatnot. But I'm not necessarily sure that locking up large tracts of agricultural land is an ethically prudent way of doing it. So if we look at, if you wanted to become carbon neutral through carbon sequestration, yeah, you can do a little bit of that through the rangeland, but a lot of it's going to have to be taking the more productive land out of operation, which we're seeing in the UK. And then you start to say, well, you start to see, well, large areas that would have produced large areas of horticulture or, or agricultural produce is now set aside to, to forestry, which is set and forget kind of stuff as well. So then you have a community impact of, you know, less people involved in the footy team. You know, geez, I'm just thinking about rural areas and livability. Yeah. I mean, I, I also wonder whether um, the, the guidelines for running these projects are set enough to see that there will be an advantage, the claimed advantage, um, the increase or the decrease in in emissions from them. I mean, it seems to me, like I went into the my book process thinking, oh, this is a great idea because it sends all the right economic signals and everything, and then I came out the other end thinking, geez, there's a lot of room for grifters in here. Mm. Like there's a lot of room for ticket clippers, um, and there's a lot of risk for farmers. And this is where I feel that we're stupid, Matt. 
Well, we're in the wrong. We should be. We're in an absolutely wrong game because carbon one of the, one consultants. Of is, one of the things is we're too honest. Yeah, we mm. could we could make a make a fortune. Well, we can't now because people would say, "Oh, that's the only reason they're doing it." But we could have made an absolute fortune on carbon markets. We could have spoke to Ronald, got ourselves citizenship in Guatemala, <laughs> took the money and ran after three years. But it, it, you're right. Like it is just one of those things where. There's an asymmetry of information. Like Matt and I, I'd like to think that we have a reasonable good uh, knowledge of markets. And I did a I did a module at uni on carbon markets back in 2014. So I really think I've got a decent knowledge of markets. But when you look at the carbon markets, there's no way somebody who doesn't have a decent knowledge of markets is going to understand it. Like it would be so easy to just tell people, "I oh, don't worry about it. It's money for jam." Just put some trees in, and we'll say it's acclimatizing this, and blah blah blah, uh, sequestering carbon. We'll put some quokkas in there, and we'll say it's biodiverse as well. And uh, and that's where it comes down to. Don't get me started on biodiversity though, either. <laughs> well, I was going to go there because they have just done the cop, but um, yeah, that's because that's nonsense. One. Well, it's not nonsense. It's a voluntary market as well. So. So explain I, the implications of that. So the carbon market at the moment is mm. an involuntary market. If you're a smelter or a big emitter like Matt, you've got to pay your for the sequestration of it. You've got to say, right, I'm emitting carbon. I've got to buy carbon sequestration. So I emit one ton of carbon or carbon equivalents. I've got to account for that, either by putting solar panels in or whatever it may be, or sequestering in the soil through trees and whatever. So it's mandated. The government says, you got to do this. And then so the market comes down. That has some fundamental differences as well, because at the moment it might be a smelter, but so that's the demand. That sets the demand of how much, but then they can say, right, we're going to add an extra industry and say, okay, the uh, concreting industry has to uh, account for your carbon. So suddenly the demand goes up. But they could also say, you could have somebody come in and say, okay, smelters are exempt. So then demand drops. So you've got this mandated market. The government sets largely what the supplies, and that's the majority of carbon. You've got voluntary markets as well, where a company like Ag Watchers, yeah, we could say, right, we really care about the environment. We want to, uh, we want to account for all the emissions that we've got. So we're going to start buying some credits and make us the first organic biodiverse carbon podcast. <clears throat> so we can do that voluntarily. It's of our own volition. We can do that. But what then happens is, let's say we're looking at biodiversity. Yeah? <laughs> like biodiversity by the key quarter of it is about diversity. And so it's about getting a diverse, getting away from monocultures, that type of thing. Yeah. So you might have a forest, you might put some, trees and stuff in it but you also you're going to want to put in uh you're going to want to pay for something yeah so let's say uh, my worry is that we have a a positive sort of affirmation of what we want to pay for if i'm nike or adidas yeah i'm probably going to pay more to protect some koalas than some snub-nosed lizard 
Like there's nothing sexy. I can't really say, oh, look at look at this. We've saved the koala. Look at you know the CEO of Adidas holding the koala, getting chlamydia or whatever from it, or <laughs> holding the brown snake. You know, like that's diversity. <laughs> diversity is you gotta have crap and good. You can't just have. Um, so, oh. so, so that's the concern I've got is the voluntary market. A, who prices it? How much value there is in that? Like, I, I don't know. Like, maybe I'm just. Well, and who determines what's good biodiversity and what's bad biodiversity? And and well, marketing departments, weren't they? Yeah, and easier to stick a picture of a koala on the front of it. So, so where does it get to? How does it pay? Like carbon markets are supply and demand, even though that demand is dictated by the government largely and the stroke of a pen. Biodiversity markets, we go for a recession. Suddenly people are like, I just want beans and toast for dinner. I'm going to buy the 69 pence, eh, cents, sorry, going back to Britain there. 69 cents, Coles or Woolies own brand beans. And I'm going to buy the $2 loaf because the recession's here. You know, I'm not going to buy the uh, SPC koala saving beans and the sourdough bread with um, traditional seeds, heirloom seeds. Well, let's, let's talk about the food prices. Matt, do you reckon um, we price in the full cost of food uh, at the checkout? Not, not, a, not, a, not in the commoditized end, I think. You know, there's, there's a lot of pressure there to... To kind of meet, uh, you know, uh, an affordable target, I think. But I mean, there are there are segments of the market that um, that exist in in you know, niche products and stuff where possibly you know there's more than the cost of food priced in because there's a an addition uh, for for people that have got a, an ability to pay more and um, you know and add some kind of value to it that's 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 not necessarily within the supply chain, you know. Um, but that but those market segments are quite small so when you look at i think the broad market i don't think we do really um is that conflict. sustainable no probably not no and that's that that harks back to you it's know what i was saying years, yeah no but but that's you know that's where you know things like country of origin labeling and things around what we're doing with carbon and and you know, having the consumer be as um, knowledgeable as possible on how the product's made and where it's come from and what goes into it and what was done to produce it, all those aspects I think need to be, um, you know, as much as possible need to, you know, people need to be as educated as they can be so they can make valid decisions then around if I'm going to pay an extra bit for this particular product, there's a reason why I'm doing it and there's a valid justification for it. You know, it's not just um, marketing spin making you do it or a brand. Not convinced. <laughs> Not convinced of what? I, I'm still not. Maybe it's just because I'm a tight-ass, measurable Scotsman. Yeah, well, that there so, is that. So this is this is tailoring my bias a bit. I go shopping every second day. You buy the cheapest possible thing you can. And find. I buy no, I don't buy the cheapest possible thing. I buy good quality on yellow stickers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just wait till it's just about to go off, and then I get it. And look, I, I think food food is is cheap in Australia. On a global basis, it's not. And that's the differentiating factor is Australians have generally got money. But but you go to Melton or Broadmeadows and you go to Woolies or Coles there, I reckon you'll find a lot of people won't give a monkeys about it being biodynamic and carbon no. neutral. They just no. want it to be cheap, 
Where they want to feed the seven kids. Um, beans on toast. I keep using going back to beans on toast. I actually like beans on toast. It doesn't have to be a cheap food. <laughs> I make my own beans as well. Um, but going back to, I think there's a lot of people who are struggling. They're on the on the breadline, especially with interest rates going up, cost of everything else going up. You know, one of the but, things they can yeah. save money on is food, and some but, people value I mean, food and some people don't. The implication of, of, you know, Matt agreeing that it was unsustainable not to price the full cost of food is, is what oh, we no, that, continue that, on. I agree with that. We've got, to, we've got to price food for what it costs to produce plus a margin. And, and let's be honest, if you look at uh, farmers' margins this year, they've been pretty strong mm. in, in a lot of areas. Uh, but again, the other thing is Australian consumer is not that important, really, for what we do. Like for meat. It's only 27% of it is important. Uh, grains, probably similar sort of numbers. We're an export state or export country. Mm. Um, Australian consumers are not that important. Most, okay. of our consum- most of our consumers are poor people. Okay, so let's talk about those niche markets then. Regenerative agriculture. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Matt? Describe, describe your, describe your definitions. Let's talk (laughs) definitions. That's that's the key thing. That's the problem, isn't it? What is the definition, and does the definition matter if there's a big market connection with it? I mean, I'm talking relatively big. You know, it 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 seems to have captured uh, a certain imagination of a certain cohort of eaters. So I gave you one. I'll tell you something actually. We are a certified body for certifying ag watchers, is certified body for registering farms as being regenerative. And we've already provided really? we've provided a certificate already publicly online. To whom? Uh, Renee, uh, cotton, cotton, cotton farm girl. Cotton farm girl. <laughs> on Twitter. We gave her Renee, a regenerative yeah. certificate probably two years ago. Right. She and, hasn't been using it in advertising. Yeah, right? no, I probably, yeah. Well, I'm not yeah. saying, it was, I'm not saying well, it was valued by the industry, but but that's the key thing. Regenerative agriculture has no definition. Organic does. You know, organic is, I know I'm answering this question, Matt, but um, organic He's has, pushy, isn't he? Well, Matt, continue. <laughs> no, you, you want no to I, know, I know what you mean. Orga- organic did have a, a specific certification, right? And, and specific and, rules and regulations, yeah, what yeah. you can do, what you can't do. Regenerative can be wherever you really want it to be. It's a lot of big companies taking it up now. Yeah, but uh, as in, in their it, definition. Do you know one of the biggest risks to organics? What? Regenerative farming. Mm. Re- organic is losing. Ground. Do we know that? What are the numbers on that? I don't know the numbers, but I know from talking to people in that field that they're concerned that they've spent all this time and resources becoming organically certified, doing this, doing that, putting up with lower yields, lower quality. um, And now they're competing with something that doesn't necessarily have lower yields because every farmer in Australia or every grain farmer technically with no till you could argue that's regenerative to an extent <laughs> you know anyone that anyone that grows grass for pasture that's regenerative 
So suddenly they're, they're on the same pedestal of people who are organic, who have spent an absolute arm and a leg to become organic, telling a story. And then just some Tom, Dick and Harry comes along and says, look, I've got the certificate from these guys at Agwatchers. So I'm regenerative. You know, it cost me $25. Matt, what do you reckon? Yeah, well, that's what... Well, he's yeah, a hippie, so he's all... <laughs> he, watched, he watched this documentary on the plane. What was that documentary you watched? Remember you came into the office. This was back... Oh, that was years ago. That, that was... was, that was that, you'd only been in the industry for a year, I think. You were still a full-blown greenie at that time. And, and you watched is, that these documentary... Are all, these are that... all Andrews. These are all Andrews' labels he puts on me. Yeah, but anyway... And you, you read this that. Is you, you can speak to my boss. And um, so, so Matt, you, you'd watch that documentary in the plane. You came in. That was that um, boring Dame, about Dame, what's that Gamo fellow? Damon, Damon, Oh, Gamo, yep, yep, yep. Uh, it was one of the, it was like, that was it. Oh, yep. yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, in, in Andrew, Andrew kind of mentioned some of the stuff that what I was kind of driving towards was that, um, the, the lack of kind of knowledge around and, and the lack of, you know, I guess, labelling that you can trust, you know, it, the, if you call yourself regenerative, what does that mean? And, and organic has gone down their own pathway and have, I mean, even from that perspective, the organic label can sometimes be manipulated too, like lots of these labels. I think it boils down to then, again, the consumer being as educated as they can around the process and, and, and what are they paying for? And if they are paying a premium for something, you know, is it justifiable um, in, you know, in a market? And, and sometimes it can be that it's not, you know, it's the prestige of a label rather than anything else. And they're happy, they're happy to pay for the prestige of the label. It's got nothing to do with the inherent quality of the product, but they want to be seen to be wearing Crocs for argument's sake because it's fashionable. You know. Have you crunched any numbers about what portion of the market is interested in organic slash regenerative is there any kind of analysis around that that market share? No, I don't, we haven't. As, we haven't. As, there, there is stuff no. out there, and I think it's nonsense as well. <laughs> as in the done. analysis is nonsense. Well, look, it's a, it's a Monday morning, so I'm a bit more cynical than normal. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 gotta get you to Friday. And there'll be yeah, probably not good, no good on a Friday afternoon either, because I've had a whole week of talking to Matt. Um, <laughs> but. Like you, you go and ask somebody. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of consumer surveys. Yeah, you ask somebody in the supermarket, would you prefer organic or not? Will you pay more for this because it's supporting what, it's whatever the cause is? Yeah, whatever. And I was going to say yes, but you look at caged eggs. Caged eggs sell out quicker than any other eggs because they're cheap. You know, and 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 and, and I, ugh, I don't know. I mean, people people say things, but don't necessarily do things. I do as I say. I'm a cheap tight ass, so I buy cheap stuff. But I don't <laughs> pretend that I buy organic or, you know, biodynamic or healthy or whatever any of that stuff. I just want stuff that is nutritious. I do buy organic, actually. I do sometimes buy organic uh, beef when it's on a yellow sticker. You're but, agnostic. But why does it go on a yellow sticker? Why does more often than not, and this is anecdotal, this is only from my own personal research, but why is the organic beef burgers, the organic steaks, and the organic sausages are always the one on yellow stickers? 
I haven't seen them on yellow stickers, but we don't. You might, you might be, you yeah. might be shopping in a different shopping complex. Well, than my, my, my IGA doesn't have organics. I have to say, if everybody um, wanted them, they wouldn't have made it to the point where they're about to go off, and I could buy them. Okay, let's talk about meat then. We've done a bit on meat, but your analysis about investments in beyond meat versus meat. I think you pitted Beyond Meat uh, with Tyson's. <laughs> what did you find? Oh, we're looking also, we're, also, we're also there with Crocs as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah and they performed poorly against Crocs as well Crocs, as Tyson's. If you invested in yeah. Crocs, you'd also have done a lot better than if you did if you, Beyond Meat or Tyson Foods. Yeah, I think from the from the, the current numbers as of a week or so back um, with the Beyond Meat share price, uh, looking at where the float price was to where it's ended up now. I think it's down nearly 90% from the float, but that's that's like it peaked higher than the float, so it's come off from a higher level than that, whereas Tyson Meats, I think, are down about 15% from from where they were that's, when, that's when Beyond Meat floated. That's from the wider market, though. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, it's significantly lower, and I think there's been a lot of hype around uh, fake meats, whether it's, whether it's plant-based meats or whether it's um, cultured meat product. Well, that's a whole separate issue entirely. But if you just focus on the plant-based aspect to initially, there there was a lot of hype around it and the sales haven't really added up to the hype. Um, you know, if you look at how they're well, performing. Well, they're, so they're selling below cost of production. So when you talk mm. about selling food, you know, unsustainably, beyond meat is probably the worst when it comes to selling below cost of production because they're trying to make a market. Mm. Actually, from that perspective, the oat the oat milks also that Oatly product is having similar type um, issues in terms of sales growth isn't what it, they thought it would be, and revenues are they're struggling. So the, the the kind of price performance of both of those companies, but, Oatly but, but, and Beyond Meat, are both struggling. You look at uh, you know obviously Melbourne, big coffee place. If you look at their sales in uh, most coffee shops. You know, alternate milks are probably close to fifty percent of milk sales in coffees. Wow, are they as high as that? Mm-hmm. Forty percent. Gosh, that's surprising. Like my, like my mate runs that that place that we went to, that, and you know, what it does a good coffee, and it's uh, most coffees. It's oh, 50, nearly fifty percent of coffees they sell. That is admittedly a bit of a hipster place, you know, for hipsters like us. Uh, but it's nearly like, like you. I'm the, I'm the hippie. You're the hipster. I think that's the. Although, although my local coffee shop is a run by Buddhist monks, and so I don't get much choice. I don't think. You win. Uh, the the interesting <clears throat> thing about those products versus, um, say, meat or dairy milk is the intersection between people who are choosing it for um, what they would cons- might consider you know, animal welfare reasons or climate reasons or but but the crashing into a much more processed product. That's what mm. I find interesting. You know, the beyond meat, you look on the label and you don't know what the ingredients are. Um, so I wonder whether that is going to have some play in what consumers buy. It's not like it's people are people are getting healthier, I think. Oh, some okay. I watched I watched a program about people who are six hundred pounds on the weekend. So some people are getting healthier. I wondered who watched those programs. Uh, some people outside of the US are getting healthier, um, and eating better. 
but when you look at those, like you say, those, like I, I bought burgers the other day on Yellow Sticker, and it was chuck beef, pepper, uh, garlic. Fantastic, with blue cheese sauce. But the uh, on the other side of it, like those are highly processed. And that's the one thing that I've had when we tried those Beyond Meat burgers was how salty. I don't like salt. And they were so salty that my mouth felt dry. And so that's not good for you because Australians eat too much salt as it is. Uh, but going back to the climate change sort of thing, yeah? If people care about climate change, they would eat awful. <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole animal. Black pudding. And everyone, everyone, like, I, I, I think, you know, I've got a less fair attitude to it. If you want to eat fake meat, eat, meat, eat, eat fake meat. But don't pretend it's healthy because it's not healthy. Are you are either of you worried about the meat, the the um, use of the term meat or milk for the alternative products? Not really. The way some in the industry are. Not particularly. Oh, it doesn't bother me, but I can't. I, I, um... I don't like. I don't like it when there's a particular company that does sell fake meat products, but I think the labelling is too close to the wind. In that the, the label has like a big picture of a of a pig on it. I think it's actually a boar as well, which is, you know, yeah. a, bit of, a, bit of, a, bit of, a bit of boar taint. Who, who doesn't want that? And they've got one with a chicken sort of thing as well. And But would you really pick it up twice? Like you might pick it up once, but would you really pick it up twice? No, and it's in a cardboard packet, so you can't actually see what it is underneath it. And if you open up the cardboard packet, it looks like Play-Doh or plasticine, whatever you call it here. And I don't like that. But, but at the end of the day, whether it's called, like people say they don't like the word sausage being used for uh, for fake meat. But I don't really see the difference. You buy a sausage at Budding Sausage, says, well, you're lucky if it's got meat in it anyway. I think it boils down to, again, you know, it, 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 as long as the consumer is knowledgeable around it or they're not being misled purposefully, you know. And that's where some of the use of the imagery or the language can be. I could I could understand as a as a producer why you'd get annoyed at it. That that there's clearly companies that are leveraging off the good reputation that real meat has uh, in terms of flavour and you know um, nutrition and everything else that, that these companies are trying to use. And you can see that it's a a pretty deliberate attempt to sometimes trick. So I think when it crosses the line there, I, I, I find that annoying. But but generally speaking, you know, as long as it's quite clear that it's a plant-based product or whatever the product is and everyone can see that and not be misled, then I, I'm going to problem with it. I think that's one of the things as well. There's this assumption that plant-based means good. Mm. And that's not the case necessarily from like, we, no, we should get on a podcast at some point. I'll ask Gabby if we can get a little bit of podcast. Ask permission. But like an actual nutritionist, like a sports mm. nutritionist. Like I know it's not, it's not agriculture. And we could do that for the boxing match because <laughs> you've got to lose 15 kilos. Yeah, it's not happening. Are you moment. boxing, Matt? Uh, Andrew and I have threatened to do a boxing match for charity, so, him, him versus I. 
But there's um, at the moment there's, there's probably it's about it's, 15, it's have to, it's have to 15 be, years of difference uh, in Andrew's uh, favour. Uh, and 15, 15 kilos. kilos of difference in my favour. <laughs> so there's uh, they call it catch weight. Is it catch weight? <laughs> no, I'm not sure, but it's catch weight is when you don't meet the weight of the actual boxer, and I think normally it's like 200 grams or 500 grams, not 15 kilos. But anyway. yeah, yeah, I'm oh. a I'm a I'm a heavyweight, and I'm not over six foot, so I think it there's, there's a problem there. <laughs> Let me know. I'll send a photographer. Um, yeah. So yeah, but I think nutritionally, the, the words plant based, people assume that's healthy, that's good. Better for the environment. Like yeah, I, all that, yeah. and, and here's an admission before Christmas. I have a soy latte. Controversial. Controversial in agriculture. <laughs> you know, but I don't have a soy latte. Be- and I would never drink soy in cornflakes or anything like that. I have whole milk. You don't have it because you're lactose intolerant. I've got all of my toes. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike the Tasmanians who've got one toe each. But when... Um, I shouldn't say that because we've got Tasmanian clients. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it's not it's not one toe, it's just web feet. Web feet. It looks like one toe. We're called Abadonians, sorry. <laughs> oh, the complaints box is going to be full. It's uh, all right, you're in charge. It's, it's, it's unmanaged anyway. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, soy latte. You I drink that, a, I don't know, why so, why soy, soy in that? Yeah. I like the taste of it. I prefer the taste but, of it. See, but why you pay you 50 put cents. It on your cereal then? You'll pay 50 like cents when, extra. 50 cents extra for his soy latte, but he won't pay 50 cents extra for his discounted meat products. You guys should do an analysis of Andrew's shopping basket at the end of every week and it would show you what products are going off. You, no, right? you would really, really see <laughs> Haribo, Doritos, Dip, Yellow Ticket, Organic, Wagyu Steak, Chicken, Chicken, Chicken. But I prefer the taste of... Uh, I just prefer the earthy taste that soy latte has. It's nothing new. Right. I've got no moral <laughs> things to moral considerations. I just prefer the taste of it. The earthy taste of soy latte. It could be an advertising. It's, it's all an there. ag product. It's an ag product. So yeah, it comes know. comes straight from the rainforest of Brazil. Some of them. Okay, we better wind up. We better wind up. But what? You guys, well, you're on the cutting edge, right? FM. Oh, I'll tell you one thing. Yeah? I'll t- I tell you one thing, yeah? Yeah. If you want to get cheap coffees, yeah? Right? No. Bloody I, I don't mean cheap coffees. Free coffee, right? Oh, here yeah. we go. Here we go. This is this is actually a community benefit too. It's a community benefit. Uh, right, maybe not community benefit. Go to somewhere where they do those buy five coffees and get a six yeah. and three. Yeah. Get one coffee, yeah? Because they all use the same stamps, yeah? <laughs> right? Pick up a whole, like, when the person's not looking, just pick up five of those cards, yeah? Go on eBay and you get a little love heart stamp. Click, 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 click. Go on the next day, get your free coffee. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to yeah. say, go and donate blood or plasma and get a coffee at the, you know, when yeah, you're in. Yeah, a sandwich that's and what a I, that's, what I, that's what I thought you were going to say. Not just, go and defraud uh, commit some kind of coffee fraud. Can some of the listeners just go and and sign up to the analysis because obviously Andrew needs more money. Um, but but beans but, on toast you, but, and but you should fraud doing coffee. You, you should you should give blood. It's important to give blood. Now we're going to wind this up. We've been going for an hour. Have we? Mm. Yes. Yes. So control discipline. 
That is what this podcast is known for. Yeah, yeah, obviously. What You guys have been on the cutting edge of the FMD story, uh, obviously the fertiliser analysis. What are the, what's the biggest ag story that nobody's talking about? Oh, I got this one. I know this one. You go first, Matt. I wouldn't, can I, because there's, there's one that I think is going to be a big story, but it's been spoken about, but probably not enough or it's not getting enough attention. It has been spoken about in some sections. That I think that particularly, in, and it probably harks back to me, mostly focus on livestock, is we haven't still sorted out our labour issues broadly, but one part that's really worrying for me is the labour issues amongst the abattoirs and meatworks. Um we saw we saw the impact of price when we had a rush of animals come through in June, July because of FMD and the processes couldn't cope because of capacity. And a lot of the processes I speak to, they say their biggest uh, their biggest constraint to capacity right now is still labour and access to labour. And we're growing the herd, growing the flock. We're going to have you know another year or two's time. We're going to have significantly high numbers of turnoff. And if we're heading into a dry patch, if we haven't got this labour issue sorted. Um, we're going to find that that's going to come back to impact upon producers in a big way in terms of price, I think. So that's something I don't think we're speaking enough about. I know the government is working towards some kind of a broader labour solution, but we really need to focus in on key parts of the supply chain like the abattoirs, you know, um, like maybe the shearing teams, um, you know, uh, maybe transport's another one where labour's a, a big issue and it's going to cause some bottlenecks and disruptions. I think we're not focused enough on labour. Mm. I think Gabby's question, though, was, mm. I don't want to paraphrase here, was what are people not talking about? Mm. Well, they're not talking enough about that. Well, that wasn't the question. Mm. The question okay. was, what are people you've, not talking you've about? You've obviously got a killer, Andrew. What is it? I reckon it is the 20 ferry rules in Europe for mm. uh, green diplomacy. Mm which nobody's talking about because, and when you mention people, they say, oh, that's too far away. I've only got... These are the new rules that have just passed the, uh, I think, the parliament, haven't they, around um, things like uh, deforestation, um, chemical usage, yeah, yeah. tail docking, whatever. Just explain how far-reaching they are because I think... Um, we've done a few stories on the environment desk has done a few stories on them, but people don't realize how far reaching they are. Well, what's going to happen is there's a whole bunch of rules coming into Europe for 2030. Uh, a lot of them are changing things like mandating higher conversion to organics. I think off the top of my head, don't hold me to this 17% and more organic land. Um, which hang on, hang on. For a producer, are you saying that they have for, to for have the, for the whole? No, for the whole block. For the country, for the or for the, the, right, for the EU, block. the block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that means that you're going to have to switch land into organics. But how which, do they determine who does that? Well, that's down to the market, isn't it? They're going to have to find. Then, someone. if they—that's the thing. If they start then imposing kind of restrictions on movement of goods based around not having enough of a target set, then some countries will have less chance to export products to other countries. And so, and so yeah. that's one, but the biggest issue with it is that they don't want to outsource their quote unquote 
environmental issues. So let's say, for instance, you've got a chemical which uh, in Europe is banned, which probably a good example is those neonicotinoids or, yeah. or whatever they're called. Um, farmers in Europe are complaining about that because, well, we don't have access to this chemical. It's causing us to have issues with our, our crop. Uh, but an importer can go to Australia or Canada and buy a product from a country that has not had that issue. So what they want to do is what is termed green diplomacy, which they can say, all right, Jimmy, uh, you can import uh, canola from, from Europe. However, they're using that product that is unavailable to our farmers. So that's giving them a material advantage. So what they might say, yeah. what they might say is, okay, there's going to be a tariff on it. Mm. There's going to be an environmental tariff to say, well, because you use that, you're going to have to pay. Or they could turn around and say, well, no, no imports from that country. But the main concern that we see is that it will, it will, Europe is an important market globally. It's a huge market. It's a rich market. Is it a, is, is it a big market for us, though? It's a, it's a relatively a, small market, right, for Australia. We all live in a bubble. We all live in a globe and everything flows and a rising tide lifts all boats. And so what happens there has a flow-on effect to the rest of the world. So canola is especially important for us when it comes to Europe for biodiesel. Uh, meat is getting more important, uh, especially on the high end side of things. But with what it does is it, it says that uh, policies developed in Europe could inadvertently be brought to the rest of the world. Because if you want to access that market, and that may be that it ends up being individual farmers might try and enter that market, but it could be wholesale. The other concern I have with it is that Europe is actually an exporter of wheat. So it exports a lot of wheat into North Africa. But if you look at the numbers, and we've done a sort of a rudimentary look at it, uh, and we, I think we're doing a project in early next year looking at what the impact of this would be, it means there's a, a, a trade flow change. And that suddenly, instead of exporting grain largely into some of the poorest parts of the world, they'll have to import more grain. So you have these whole trade flows that change because of policy events in, in Europe. So I think that's the biggest one. Nobody's talking about it, uh, but there's a, there's a hint. I'm sure we'll, we'll read more about it as people learn more about it. But we're 2020, and people say, oh, it's, it's too far away. It's 2030. It's not that far away. No. You know, that's just before Matt's 70th birthday. <laughs> See what I have to put up with, Gary? Thank you to both of you. Thank you for letting me surf in on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope everyone uh, has a wonderful Christmas and break over the um, January period. What are you guys doing? Are you spending some downtime? Because you've had a big year. Self-employed, just working. Working, <laughs> working all the way through. Nice life for the wicked. Yeah, well, right. I'm surprised Andrew didn't say that. It, when, when did it become a... In Scotland, that Christmas Day actually became a public holiday. It was only within your lifetime, wasn't it? No, it was 1970s, I think. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, I thought it was the 80s, in the 80s. 
They never used to have a holiday on Christmas in Scotland. Wow. Yeah, back a generation ago. Incredible. Work ethic. But, but so Andrew just likes days, to work two, through. Two days off at New Year. To recover oh, from Hog, well, yeah. Hogmanay. Mm. Hogmanay. Yeah. No, a uh, bit of downtime. I think I'll be continuing to, you know, move move family around the 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 hippie commune, as Andrew likes to refer to it. Yeah. <laughs> smoking well, pot, smoking pot and doing mushies while you play the banjo and the ukulele or whatever it is with your tie dye clothes on. And veggies, your organic veggies. I will be. I'll be spending some time in the garden. I think you know, getting things prepared. You know, kind of stuff, you know. I'll just be eating. Eating beans yeah, on toast. Beans eating on beans toast. on toast. Yeah. And, yeah. and looking for a discounted chicken. You'll be hanging around Woolworths at uh, Canberra Woolworths at, at 9 o'clock waiting for the chicken to go down from I'll, $4 to I'll $3. Be, I'll be going to the soup kitchen. He might be going to emergency with salmonella by the end of it. Do you know what? There's actually good documentaries about uh, food waste in the UK. UK is a good example because they throw a lot of food out in the supermarkets. And there's a lot of people that go dumpster diving in the UK uh, because it's good quality food. So let's be honest. Good quality. Have you ever done it? Have I done it? Look, look, once, right? Was this when you were a was this when you were a uni student back? No, it was, it was actually in Australia <laughs> last week. No, I went. I went to. I went to a. Um, uh, I was. And this is this is this is probably like I'm a pretty open book. You ask me a question, I'll answer it. I went. I was in Perth, and uh, I went and filled up my car with petrol. Uh, and then I went to the. I had some rubbish in the car, so I went over to like the bin and put it in. But it had like these big, you know, like the Visa, like the the big bins, you know, like the commercial bins. Yeah, 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 yeah. Open up. A skip, a, a skip, a skip. skip. Yeah. yeah. So I threw my rubbish in the back of it. And I noticed they had all these crates of. Of like what they call it, what are those energy drinks called? Oh yeah, Red Bull. Something Red like Bull that. or Monster. They had boxes of them sitting in it. Yeah. That, st- <laughs> that stuff is chemicals. Yeah. It's Seal never going to go off. Seal cans never going to. So I filled the back of the car with these cartons of stuff. I took them to hockey. Gave them to everyone. <laughs> Didn't tell them. I said, "Oh, here's a freebie." <laughs> we, we we played. We played. Really, we, we played really fast that game. <laughs> Yeah. So, on that note. Mm. So a thank bit of, you very bit of, much. Bit of oversharing, but I think that's the best best story to end on. Thanks very much, listeners. You will see these two next year. Hear these two next year. Thanks very much no. for uh, thanks very much for coming on, Gabby, and uh, and you know, kind of putting up with us. Um, see when you got, fun. See when you got nothing on. Toodaloo.